Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and verses 10 through 14. You can also read along on page 8 of your bulletin. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God's word. We've taken a short break away from our current series in Genesis to observe the Advent. The Advent in Latin meaning the coming, the coming of Christ. And uh, we're looking into the meaning of Christmas, the coming of Jesus. The past several weeks, we've been looking at the people who have surrounded the birth of Christ, people like Joseph, the shepherds, Mary. Today, we're looking at Jesus, the Word, the Word of God, the meaning of Christmas. It's full of you know, powerful, life-changing truths. For instance, if you look at the beginning of uh, Matthew and uh, Luke, the gospel according to Matthew and Luke, they focus on the facts. They focus on the history, the historical account of Christ and who he is. But in John chapter 1, the author doesn't mention any of the historical facts. The author writes in a very particular way, not mentioning the history, not mentioning the facts that Matthew and Mark and Luke focus on. John focuses on what all this means. What is the meaning, the true meaning of Christmas? And so today, three very short points we're going to focus on. And we're going to focus on the most pregnant, most poignant part of this passage, one verse, really. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word, Jesus is the word, who became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. First, the word. Jesus is the word. What does the author mean by this? And you have to get this. Your word is the clearest revelation of who you are. For instance, think back to a time when you had a crush on somebody. Seventh grade, 10th grade, last week. You want to get to know somebody, but what do you do? You take guesses. You, you think about the person. You infer by studying this person. And, and if you study someone deeply, you can make inferences about that person, but, you know, what they're interested in, their hobbies, you know, what type of people they're attracted to. And you think about that, and you ponder, you wonder, you guess. But eventually, what do you have to do? You usually go to your friend, and you usually ask your friend to go talk to that person and do what? And hear from them directly. In other words, you may learn a lot about somebody by studying them. You can study celebrities. You can study scholars. You can learn a lot about somebody doing that. But nothing beats walking up to the person directly, talking to that person. You need to hear from them. You need to hear from their word. There's nothing like their word. And here, the author says, Jesus is the word of God. In other words, you can learn all sorts of stuff about God, but to know him personally, you have to know Jesus. It takes Jesus. He's the ultimate revelation of who God is. He is the supreme revelation. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author says, Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. 
He's the radiance of God's glory, God's Shekinah glory, the very fire and cloud that guided the Israelites out of Egypt. He's saying that is Jesus. It is literally put into the person of Jesus. He is the supreme revelation of God. What is John saying here? In other words, we can know God personally in a very personal way. God has come into history and has become a rational human being. Eastern religions say that is impossible. They say that God cannot be personal. Western religions say God can be a person, but he's too holy, so he can't be personal. There's no way that he can be personal. But Christianity blows Eastern thinking, Western thinking aside, blows them away, and says that God, the Almighty, has become personal. The holy has become human. God has become so personal that even Mary, poor, illiterate, disfranchised, marginalized, even Mary can hold him. God has become infinitely powerful, and yet he's become fragile. He's become personal. He's become a baby. You can know God personally. You can know God to the touch. That's what it means. The text is telling us that God has spoken to us rationally. He says that in the beginning was the word. The Greek word here is logos, where we get the word logic. In other words, God didn't just give us a watertight argument in defense of the faith. His watertight argument His logic, his reason has been incarnate. He's become a person. In in other words, we look for that watertight argument, you know, because of this truth, I can now fully and wholly believe, but God's given us something better than a watertight argument. He's given us a person, something that can reason with us, a person that can, uh, you know, rationalize the truths of the faith with us. He didn't just give us something that we can just take and walk away with. He gave us a person who can argue with us, disturb us at times, uh, challenge us. What this means is you have to look to Jesus. You have to look to the person of Jesus. You have to look at his claims. You have to look at the historical accounts. You have to look at his teachings. But you have to look particularly at his character, who he is, what he came to do, what was his mission, and what did he accomplish. That means that you have to think. You have to reason. You have to reason with an open mind. You know, the more you do that, I'm telling you, I'm submitting to you, the more you reason, the more you uh, rationalize, you're going to realize that God, you know, Jesus, the person, apart from who he is and what he came to do, would be inexplicable. You cannot rationalize who Jesus is. You know, he didn't come to just become a, a good teacher or religious leader. That's not enough. It's insufficient to describe and explain who Jesus really is. You have to look at his character. You have to look at what he did. And the more you do that, you're going to find compelling proof. That's your watertight argument. You're going to find compelling proof if you process him. He is the word of God, the exact representation of his being, and you have to let that reason and argue with you. If you want to know God personally, you must know him through his word. You must know him through Jesus. Second, the word became flesh. Jesus is the word of God, but he became flesh. The divine became human. The word, God's exact representation, the Shekinah glory of God, that fire cloud, became killable, became vulnerable, became weak. And this is absolutely radical because Christianity is the only religion that says that the divine creator of the world became human and vulnerable. Christmas, the meaning of Christmas is this. That God came down. Now, what do I mean by that? Why is it significant that God, you know, we read in our call to worship in Philippians chapter 2, that he became obedient. He actually came in human, uh, the appearance of a man. He came down. Why is that significant? 
If you've ever taken a psychology class, Psychology 101, you'll, you'll hear this term or this phrase, diffusion of responsibility. And what that means is this. It means that um, when someone actually, when you're walking in down a dark alley and someone starts to follow you down that dark alley and you start to get that weird feeling and they come upon you and they try to mug you, what do you do? You instantly, you start crying out for help. And as you cry out for help, the diffusion of responsibility means this. Lights will come on. People will open the shades and look out, and they'll watch you. But, they, but no one actually comes down. They actually assume somebody else is going to come down and help you. And eventually, nobody ends up coming down, and we've seen tragedies in the city like this. There are famous ones that have been documented of people who've cried out for help and assailants, knowing that lights are coming on, are coming on and, and people are looking out their window, they actually run away, but they've actually come back eventually because no one comes down to save. No one comes down to help. Why is that? The reason why no one comes down, the reason why we don't like to go down is because when we, when we do that, we're risking tragedy, we're risking violence, we're risking suffering, we're risking death. And if you think about it here, God came down. God came down. Jesus actually came down. What that means is that he didn't just come down at the risk of tragedy and loss and violence and suffering and death. He came at the cost of tragedy and violence and loss and suffering and death. If it's true that God became flesh, then it means he understands us because he's come down. That's why in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, you know, in our word of encouragement, it says that Jesus is our wonderful counselor. He's mighty God, he's everlasting Father, he's our Prince of Peace, but he is our wonderful counselor. It means he understands. The best counselors in the world are what? Are who? People who've suffered in the same way that you've suffered. And as a result, because they've come out of the suffering, they're able to now lead you out of the suffering. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. He's come down and he's experienced loss and suffering, and violence, and tragedy, and death. Christmas is saying this, that the God of the universe has actually laid down on the operating table. One of the biggest complaints of the medical industry is this, bedside manners. People, practitioners who are not able to demonstrate grace and love and the manner that you would hope them to have. And, and many times our bedside manners in our medical industry is poor, and that's because they don't know how difficult it is until they themselves are able to get onto the operating table they don't know the difficulty that patients suffer and experience. Jesus, our healer, what this means, what Christmas means is that he's been on the operating table. He ex he's experienced everything that we've experienced. He's, you know, if you've ever been betrayed, so is Jesus. If you've ever been in pain, so is Jesus. If you've ever been broke, so is Jesus. If you've ever suffered loneliness, experienced loneliness, so has Jesus. Now, that means that we can go to him. We can go to him with whatever we have. Now, you may say, you know, well, I prayed to God, and God abandoned me. He never answered me. I prayed to God, and he rejected me because I, he never answered me. He, so I see that as abandonment. I see that as rejection. You know what? Jesus experienced that too. On the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even Jesus experience what it's like to be abandoned by God. When he's on Gethsemane, when he's in Gethsemane, he says, you know, Father, take this cup from me. Not my will, but yours be done. But he was turned down. He was rejected. And on the cross, when he cried out those words, 
what we're seeing is that God has turned him down. So Christmas means you can't just rail like God because he experienced everything we experienced. You, and because he experienced everything we experienced, you can go to him with anything. He's been there. Do you trust him? Do you know him? Do you trust him? So, so far we've said that the word, Jesus is the word. He's the exact representation of God. And that means that we can know God personally, but we said that Jesus became flesh. He came down, and therefore God understands. We can go to him with everything. We can go to him with anything. Lastly, Jesus made his dwelling among us so that we can see his glory, so that we can behold his glory. John could have used any word to teach us that Jesus resided with us, that he was with us, that he stayed with us, that he lived with us, but he chose the word dwelling, and the word he chose, that actual word in the Greek is translated to mean tabernacled. It's a very, very, it's a word that's not widely used in our modern colloquialisms, the word tabernacled. We beheld his glory and he dwelled, he tabernacled with us. We beheld his glory as a result, the word glory. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod. In 1 Samuel, in the account of 1 Samuel, we have the wife of Phineas, an evil priest. He's the son of a, a ruler priest named Eli. And Phineas is wicked, and he's, he's basically going to get struck down, he's going to die. And yet his wife, the wife of Phineas, is pregnant. And as she's pregnant, at the moment she's about to give birth, simultaneously the ark, which represented the, the presence of God, was captured by the Philistines, the enemies of the Jews, the enemies of the Hebrews, the Israelites. And the ark was captured and news comes to Phineas's wife who's lying pregnant and giving birth and she's dying. It turns out she's not going to make it. And as she lies dying, she hears the news of the ark, the presence of God, stolen by the enemy. The glory of God has departed, and so she names her child Ikavod, Ikavod, Ikabod. The glory has departed. No glory. And, you know, when Moses was on the mountain, he says, God, I want to see you. I want to see your glory. I want to see your kavod. Show me your kavod, your glory. God says, I can't do that, because if you were to see me fully and wholly, you will not survive that. You're not going to survive seeing all of me. So let's build this tabernacle. And in this tabernacle, you're going to have sacrifices and you're going to have priests, but I will be there. I will reside with you. I will dwell there with you. I will be, you will be my people. I will be your God. But I need to be concealed. I need to be veiled so that you could be with me. I need to be tabernacled. John uses that phrase, that exact phrase. Jesus dwelled. He tabernacled with us so that we could behold his kavod, glory. But what we're seeing here in this passage is the exact opposite of what Moses experienced. It's the exact opposite of what uh, the people in the tabernacle days experienced. When Jesus came here, John says, we behold his glory. We see it in full. Two meanings here. Number one, because Jesus tabernacled with us and because we're able to behold his glory in full, that is the end of religion. Christianity emphasizes the end of religion, the person of Christ, because he came to live the life we should live and he came to die the death that we should die. That's the end of religion. What is religion? Religion is, if you want to feel acceptable, we have to work our way to earn God's favor. We have to work our way to garner God's, God's uh, acceptance. But Jesus coming down means that we're accepted. 
Jesus tabernacling with us, among us, means that the all-powerful has minimized into a human being so that he could be with us, reside with us. And what that means is that, that we don't have to earn God's acceptance anymore. God actually came down. We are accepted in Christ. That's the end of tabernacles. That's the end of temples. That's the end of sacrifices. That's the end of priests. Why? Because Jesus has become all these things. Now, that means one other thing. One other thing. Why wasn't Moses able to to see the glory of God in full? God says, if you do this, you won't survive. You'll be consumed. Why is it that Moses cannot? The great Moses, but we can. If you've ever been wronged by somebody in a very, very serious way, I'm talking a very, very serious way, a gap forms between you and that person. A gap. There's a distance that's created between you and the person who's wronged you, the perpetrator. And a serious action has to take place in order to close that gap. You know that. You know this existentially. You've experienced that. You know, a, a, an apology you know is not enough. There's some things that have been, you've been so wronged in, in some ways that you know that an apology, simply just saying an apology is not going to be enough for you. If I take your car right now and I crash it against the wall, you know, one of us has to pay for that. Either I have to pay for that by getting you a new car or giving you the money to, to, to cover the damages, or you have to pay for that. You can say, you know, I forgive you, I'll let you go, but what that means is either, I, either, either A, I have to go without a car, or B, I have to buy a new car, or buy something to replace that car. I have to pay. So, so uh, in the same way, what's going on here? We know that an apology is insufficient, and the reason why that's the case is because we are made in God's image. All of us have been made in God's image. That's what the Bible says. And because we've been made in God's image, a gap has existed between us and God for centuries. That gap, because that gap exists, we understand and we experience and we demonstrate the same type of brokenness, the same kind of distance between each other. Sin has created not only alienation from us and God, but us with each other, with one another. That's why we see the brokenness in the city. And the thing is, that gap, it's an apology A world full of apologies will not be enough to fix that gap, to close that gap completely. You can't just come into God's presence. That's what that means. You can't just walk into God's presence. There's a price that you're going to pay if you do. You'll be consumed. You'll be burnt up. Here, Jesus had come. Jesus, the glory of God, has become a baby. In the Old Testament, the glory of God was a smoking mountain. It was a fiery mountain, so scary, so threatening that Moses himself, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, said, I am afraid, I am terrified. It was a consuming fire, but this unscalable mystery of God, his transcendence has become flesh, a baby, accessible, safe, warm, intimate, helpless, vulnerable. Christmas means that the gap has closed. Christmas means the gap no longer exists. You can hold Jesus. The life-transforming glory of the power of God has come to you. Now, how does that happen? On the cross, on the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? Moses says, I can only behold God partially. He has to be veiled. When God passed by, I only saw his backside. We are able to see the glory of God. We are able to behold the glory of God in fullness, in fullness. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus says, I've lost the glory of God. God has forsaken me. No glory. The cross says, I'm experiencing the Ichabod I've become. Jesus has become the real Ichabod. Jesus, the tabernacle. Jesus, the temple on the cross. The glory of the Lord departed from him. On the cross, Jesus says, I've been torn apart. I've been torn asunder. You know what that means? That God has been ripped apart at the seams. The Trinity, three in one, has been torn apart. Why? Christmas means, Christmas means reconciliation so that the gap could be closed. You know, on the cross, when Jesus died, the holy temple curtain at the time of his death was torn. The veil that separated God and his people in the temple was torn in two. And, and what does that mean? No more veil. We have access Everyone can have access to God, and that means several things. One, we said it was the end of religion. The veil was literally ripped, torn from top to bottom. It wasn't ripped from the bottom to the top. That means man has to work to get access to God. It was actually torn. That was impossible. God had literally taken the, the temple curtain and tore it from top to bottom. We now have access to God. No more religion. We are accepted. No more tabernacle. The word is Emmanuel. God with us. But the other thing it means is that it's the end of the gap. There's no more gap. We have access, ultimate access. When we pray, our prayers are heard. When we cry out, God sees us, God hears us, God knows us. Today, what that means is we need to go to him. You need to go to him. You know, if a man claims to be God, he's either a fool or liar or he's true. So either you have to dismiss him altogether, reject him, call him a liar, call him a fool, or you have to serve him, bow down, kneel before him. There's no halfway. The one thing you can't do is say, you know, Jesus is a nice guy. He was a good man. He was a great teacher. You can't do that. The very nature of the birth of Christ demands a response. You either reject him for who he is or, or who he claims to be, or you serve him with everything that you've got. Go to him. Go to him as your counselor. Whatever's hurting, whatever your brokenness is, go to him. He can heal it. He can heal it because he suffered it. He suffered it to the cosmic degree. And that means because he suffered it, we can go to him, we can change, we can always have hope. Christmas means we can always have hope. There's peace. Will you trust that? In a few days, we're going to be sharing with our families, sharing the, the blessing, the worldly blessing that is Christmas. But this week, Will you take the time as we lead into Christmas with sobriety? Will you reflect on the true blessing, the true meaning of Christmas? The Word became flesh. God came down and He made His dwelling among us so that we can close the gap and we can have access to God. Let's relish in that. Let's celebrate that because that's the true meaning. Let's pray together.